morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone, the world over, literally. Thank you all for joining us in the flesh. And for those of you, our brothers and sisters and our friends from around the world, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. We love you very much. We think about you all the time. We pray for you all the time. And thank you for, for joining us. And we hope, we pray that our exposition of the Gospel of John has been life and strength for your soul. We had a beautiful old hymn sang for us by our choir some time before we, uh, what's the right word for it? We, we open up a recording for, to reach everybody in the world at large. A wonderful old hymn here, well chosen. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I believe the author of this hymn must have had verse 4 straight out of the Gospel of John from this conversation with Nicodemus. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. That verse is precisely what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man who came to be lifted up in his atoning death and lifted up in his resurrection and his exaltation now in heaven on high, preparing to return in his second advent at the perfect time and the divine plan. Let me offer up a prayer for the exposition of the word of the Lord and then we will stand and read it. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you, Father God in particular, in the name of Jesus, and we trust by the inspiration and guidance of God the Holy Spirit. Hear our imperfect, fumbling prayers. Have mercy on our prayers. Forgive us of our sins, our faults, and our failures on a daily basis. We thank you with great gratitude for the opportunity to preach and teach, proclaim the gospel of Jesus, not only to our own community, but to the world at large. And we very much cherish this opportunity, and we cherish those folks from so many countries who have been listening for so long now, and who have been faithfully joining us for our exposition of sacred scripture, the Gospel of John, and the inspired letters. Let your word go out by the power of your spirit to achieve exactly what is, is meant to achieve, the strengthening of the souls who are in you, and the salvation of souls who those who are destined for salvation in the Son of Man who is lifted up. We thank you so much for this opportunity. Open the minds and hearts of everyone watching and listening and the minds and hearts of those gathered here in the flesh to receive the truth of your word. Live our lives in the light of it and translate your words with your help by the power of your spirit into action in our life. Heal everyone on our prayer request list, all of their sicknesses, their injuries, the upcoming surgeries and procedures. Let it all go wisely and well. Heal these folks. Set them back into physical fitness again. Return them to their normal schedules. Reveal yourself to them in a very special way in all situations and circumstances as you wish to do. Help us to always be watching and listening for you, for you are working all of the time, ceaselessly, even when, from our flawed perspective, it does not appear to be so. And thank you for always working in our behalf the merciful and gracious God. We thank you for Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and all that it means and all that it has brought 
to persons the world over for the past 2,000 years and shall faithfully continue to do so until the Son of Man returns. May everything that is said and done here this morning bring praise, honor, and glory to you. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? I'm just going to begin at the top of the chapter. And the two verses that we are going to um, dig down into, explore the truth of, or unpack as many theologians like to say today, and I've adopted that expression, I love that, unpacking the truth of the word of the Lord. Today's two verses in particular will be, chap- uh, pardon me, verses 14 and 15, the Son of Man lifted up. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak that which we know, and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So now we take up Jesus' discourse. This has ceased, of course, to be a conversation or a theological debate. It is all discourse now on the part of Jesus. And we take up his discourse, of course, from where we left off last week with Jesus all but explicitly stating his deity, his divine identity and his divine origins or his heavenly origins, his authority and his totally unique personal qualifications to proclaim and to teach the truth, the reality of this spiritual New birth, as he calls it, from above, by water and the Spirit. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you recall from last week, no mere mortal human being has ever ascended to heaven by their own efforts. The righteous dead, when they die, they immediately go into the personal presence of God, yes, to heaven. But no one has ever ascended, no mere mortal human being, a member of flawed sinful humanity, has ever ascended to heaven by way of their own efforts, much less returned to earth to tell everyone about it to tell everyone what was to be seen there, what was to be heard there, 
that they had enjoyed the personal counsels of God in eternity and came back to talk about it. No, of course not. These things must be revealed by someone who has come from heaven, by someone whose origins are in heaven, from someone who has enjoyed the personal presence of God and the deep counsels of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus, and of course us, that no one less than the divine Son of Man must accomplish this. The divine Son of Man, who is human and yet divine, of Daniel's wonderful prophecy. And Jesus is implying, if not explicitly stating, He is this very Son of Man, as prophesied, arrived at last. He, the Son of Man, is on a totally different and a totally unique level altogether. He, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Word made flesh, He could and He did come down from heaven to reveal God's plan of salvation to and for humanity. And He came down to raise human beings up to heaven, something that humanity could and never will be able to achieve on our own. And so Jesus continues His discourse, His lesson, in order to explain now and to answer Nicodemus you can imagine this poor man's mental and emotional state by this time. How can these things be? Well, Jesus is going to explain it to him. And it's been there all along. How can these things be? The, many have believed over the centuries that the very heart, the very core, the center of the Christian faith, or the center of God's wonderful plan of redemption, wonderful plan for human salvation, is proclaimed by Jesus here specifically in this conversation in uh, verses, why do I keep saying chapters? Pardon me, verses 14 to 18. And Jesus makes a magnificent point and that this plan, the story of God for the redemption of humanity, again, it's found in the Old Testament. Why do I keep saying this? Because look for it there. Look for it there. It is there. He is there. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is there. The proper way to read your Old Testament is to look for Him. He's there. As Jesus has told Nicodemus, He was there, the plan was there in the Old Testament sacred scriptures all along, and Nicodemus and his fellows of the religious establishment should have known. and should have been teaching this and should have been watching. It's been there for all to see, to quote Jesus in another passage, it's been there all along for all history to see, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. That is, God's grace extended towards fallen humanity was there all along. But now, a new age begins. The newest age, the greatest age, the last great age of history began in the first century A.D., 2,000 years ago, with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son, the Word made flesh, the prophesied one. With the arrival of Jesus, a new age and era of salvation and redemption begins. The old covenant is to be replaced by the better new covenant. The new covenant is to be established by God the Son, the Word made flesh Himself. A new age is inaugurated, the Messianic age. The age of Messiah's person and His accomplished work in human redemption. Folks ask, how were people saved in the Old Testament? By God's grace. How were people saved in the New Testament? By God's grace. Even though there are differences between the one covenant and the other. In the Old Covenant, those folks really were putting their faith and their trust in God, in God the Son who is yet to come. And we, the folks of the New Covenant, put our faith and our trust in the Messiah who has arrived and accomplished His work 
in his first advent. He whose person and work was prophesied, was anticipated, was expected all along for centuries, all throughout the history recorded, the Old Testament world as we would say. And so Jesus is saying, oh yes, the Old Testament was all about his arrival, looking to him, anticipating him, his work. I'll use another expression that others better than I before me have used. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a story that is so magnificent, it takes both testaments to tell, and so it does. And here Jesus gives Nicodemus and us, of course, a wonderful example, a perfect example of that from the life of Moses and from the life of the Old Covenant people of Israel. Now, as I've said to you before on many a Sunday morning and Bible study night, particularly when we're studying the Old Testament as we are on Tuesday nights, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, for example, look for Jesus there. Look for Him there. Look for Him there. And many of these people in the Old Testament, they're actual folks. It's recorded history. Real space, real time, faithfully, accurately recorded history. Real people and real events in the history of a particular race, a particular nation. However, they are something of a living signpost. They are something of a living parable about the person and work of the promised Messiah, the Redeemer. Events that were very real, taking place in the lives of very real people, very important when they occurred. And yet, they all point to someone or something that is even greater to come. A greater person and greater realities yet to come in history. 14. And, as, and here's one of them. Here's one of those events that Jesus specifically, explicitly refers to. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Look at this conversation as if you're looking at it for the first time. That is an incredible thing to say. A remarkable thing to say at this point in this conversation or this discourse. And this is, of course, an event, a perfect example of an event in which Jesus speaks of, and it's He's referring to it, looking to Him, anticipating Him, anticipating this era of Messianic salvation, the inauguration of a new covenant, the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah when He arrives. And of course this event, uh, to jog your memory, it's recorded in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, particularly in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. So if Jesus wants us to be familiar with this event and view this event as pointing to Him, we need to go to it. And we need to read this event, put it in the forefront of our consciousness, and I'll give you a brief explanation of what it was all about. So turn, if you wish to, or follow along. Let's go to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And this is, of course, from the wilderness wanderings of a rather fractious and rebellious Israel at this point their wilderness wanderings before they are permitted to enter into the land of promise. Uh, beginning in verse 4. Then they went out from Mount Hormah by the way of the sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. That's a rather polite way of putting it. They became wickedly, dangerously, perhaps even violently rebellious, not only against Moses, but against God himself. And the people spoke against God. 
First, they speak against God Himself. This is egregious, rather wicked rebellion against the God who has saved them and has guided them, protected them, and provided for them all this while. This is a very wicked thing. And I believe with other biblical scholars that this is a time when they're growing dangerous, they're growing violent. And this is probably one of those occasions where they're even threatening Moses and Aaron and their families with murder. Yes, it's that bad. And the people spoke against God, first of all, worst of all. And Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water. And this word kutz in the Hebrew translated as loathe. We loathe this miserable food. This is terrible. It is an expression of hatred. We despise, we loathe, we're disgusted with you and with all of this. This is horrible. This is a summation of rebellious and sinful humanity at their worst. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people as a means or instrument of judgment, of course. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died for their flagrant, wicked, and egregious rebellion against God. This word fiery is very interesting. Uh, the words fiery, sauroff and nachash, these words for fiery serpent in the Hebrew. There's probably several reasons for that. Uh, the word fiery may be literally the reddish or copper colored hue of these adders or these vipers, these snakes, which are sent as a means of judgment against these wicked people. Also, snakes were called fiery and that event, the, the venom of a, the bite of a snake was said to burn. Uh, that, that expression was used in antiquity as well. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Isn't that interesting? When judgment comes, sometimes that is the only way to wake people up to just how wicked their sin and their rebellion against God is. Just how vile ingratitude and rebellion towards God is. We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. One of the main duties of any servant of God is to intercede for others. You'll find Moses, I think Moses almost more than any other figure in the Old Testament is mentioned as interceding for the people at large. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses faithfully interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, here's the image, here's the type. Here's the sign, a literal signpost pointing of what God's grace and favor extended to wicked, rebellious people, but something even greater is going to come in the centuries in the future. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, a block of wood, a wooden standard, a flagpole, a pole. Hoist it aloft where everybody can see, where everybody can respond to it. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, specifically, pointedly, willfully, deliberately looks at it, goes to it, putting their trust not in the serpent and the pole, but in the God who said, erect the serpent and the pole. The serpent is what? A representative of the way that God is judging them. The serpent is a means of God's judgment. Put an image of the means of God's judgment on that pole. Here is God's judgment. Held up over you all. If you go to that and put your faith and trust in the God in whom you have rebelled against, you'll be saved. You'll be healed. You'll be saved from death. 
dare I say, you'll be given a new life from the death that comes from the bite of these serpents of judgment. And it came about that if a serpent bit anyone, any man, you can translate from the Hebrew, man and woman, anyone, any person, and he, she, they looked to the bronze serpent, they lived. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. Now it's very interesting there too, a little few interesting details for you. Um, the word in Hebrew by which we usually translate bronze, there's probably an even more accurate way to translate it. We should probably more accurately translate that Hebrew word as copper. It was probably a copper snake, a red, reddish, fiery copper snake that was placed upon that pole and hoisted aloft. Uh, you folks that have your ESV study Bible, there's a very interesting textual note. I'm glad they put this note in there. That archaeologists uh, uh, have found remains of copper mines in this area where they were traveling at the time. And there were smelting furnaces and uh, forges uh, at that time, or later on, which actually were known for making copper tools and utensils and implements and jewelry. And archaeologists near a Midianite site called Timna, archaeologists have actually found about a five-inch-long ornamental copper snake from or about this time period. So we believe that the, the, the snake is probably copper. And can you imagine what a striking image a brand new copper piece of copper would be in the high noon near eastern sun hoisted up on a height on a pole, reddish in hue for fire. Fire has always been imagery for the judgment of God. These snakes may have even been reddish in color. Also, red points to the blood of an atoning sacrifice as well, which the people were to be practicing and observe, the people of Israel were to be practicing and observing at this time. And this pole lifted up points to the atoning blood of the Lamb who will be lifted up on a pole centuries in the future. Folks, it was very real to Moses. It was very real to Israel. A very real message of God's grace extended to rebellious, sinful people who do not deserve it. But I'm telling you, that event was a living sign, a living parable of something greater to come. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us. And exactly what he's telling Nicodemus here in this discourse. Now, this event, very real, very important again to ancient Israel at the time. Again, nevertheless, a living parable of someone, something greater to come. And Jesus will tell Nicodemus, and thereby us, of what that greater reality was and is, that this event, the, the event of the copper snake, points to or anticipates. Something funny happened to me about a day or so ago. I, I use a number of Bibles in, in studying for Tuesday night and Sunday morning, but the principal... Um, the Bible I use on Sunday mornings is a, a, a Greek, a Hebrew keyword a study Bible, in which the chief editor was Brother uh, uh, Spiros Zodiades, a wonderful theologian and, and Greek scholar. He would, would, I don't know if our brother is passed on or not, but he, he was or is Greek. And he has a wonderful little uh, textual note here in, in the keyword study Bible that I use, and I kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it, and I think a day or so ago the Lord said, this has been staring at you in the face all week long. It's staring at me now. Use it. Read a bit of this for these folks. And so I will. He writes, from a Christian perspective, this is one of the most important incidents in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Uh, it had a very far-reaching influence on Israel herself. 
Notice, in commanding a bronze snake to be made, bronze or copper snake to be made, God made an exception to the second of the Ten Commandments, which forbade the making of an image of any creature found upon the earth. Exodus 20, verse 4. In the New Testament, the inspired apostle Paul made, a brief, made a, um, his brief historical reference to the fact that God had sent serpents as a way to punish Israel, 1 Corinthians 10, 9. But the principal allusion to the incident comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus likened his being lifted up on the cross to Moses lifting up that bronze serpent in the wilderness, John 3:14. Much of the significance of this lies in the fact that this reference to Moses and the bronze or copper serpent brought about one of the most famous statements in the New Testament, John 3:16, one of the golden texts of the Bible. Now this is interesting. He's right. There were a number of early church fathers who carried this imagery even further than Jesus did. Since it would be necessary, so they supposed to have a cross beam on that pole in order to hold up the image of a copper snake. You see where the early church fathers were headed with this? Since it may very well have been necessary for Moses to add a cross beam to the pole in order to support this copper snake. Many of the church fathers saw in the pole itself a direct allegorical reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think they were very much right in that because they're following the teaching and words of Jesus himself. Many times the early church fathers went a little too far in the allegorical interpretation of the Bible. But here they were probably correct. Someday we may find out that that pole lifted up with that snake on it may have been this instead of just this. Very interesting. In fact, I've seen that in artwork of artists who depict this event from the Old Testament. Um, so the lifting up, of, I'm going to call it a copper snake. The lifting up of this copper snake was a visible physical sign. It's a visible physical sign of the means of God graciously and offering redemption and forgiveness or new life from certain death to the undeserving people of old Israel. In this event, this was God's way of offering life, new life, life from death, and salvation that these people frankly did not deserve for their evil and violent rebellion against God and His servant. All of this is pointing to the person and work of the Messiah, Jesus is saying. All of this is pointing to the divine Son of Man, Jesus Himself. Jesus tells us that this event, folks, I'm hammering these truths home because somewhere out there in this world, this is going to somebody who is hearing this for the very first time. I know some of you folks have heard this over and over. Well, you're going to hear it again in depth because we need to. But there's somebody out there that is hearing this for the very first time. Jesus tells us that this event points to himself. Jesus likens the event that I just read to you in Numbers 21, that this event points to he himself. This event points to what is going to happen with Jesus and in Jesus and upon Jesus on that cross. 
that snake represented the judgment of God on that pole. When Jesus Christ was hoisted aloft on that cross, He represented the judgment of God. The judgment of God the Father was placed on God the Son on that cross, the judgment that we deserve. He took our judgment upon Himself on that cross so that all who look to Him on that cross will come to have the new birth, eternal life, salvation, new life, and salvation from the judgment of God that we all deserve. One of the great things, or great themes, pardon me, of the events recorded in the book of Numbers is human sin. It's not just about the history of a nation of fractious people wandering around in the desert hoping to get to somewhere better. No, one of the great theological themes of the book of Numbers is human sin and God's grace and favor that sinful people do not deserve. And it is a book about the final judgment, final judgment for those who rebelliously reject God's grace extended to them. So Jesus is telling us, put this together. Jesus is telling us that the coming of the Messiah, His arrival flesh, is what? Is all about confronting human sin with God's grace and favor. Sound familiar? God's grace and favor, this sinful people do not deserve. The coming of the Messiah, like the book of Numbers, is all about God offering salvation by way of something or someone who will be lifted up on a pole, a brutal block of wood, for all to see. And yes, the coming of the Messiah is also about a very sober and war final warning of judgment for those who reject this extension of God's grace. Is it coming clear to you? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Are you putting this together, those of you who are familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That is an absolutely incredible thing to say. And what in the world must Nicodemus be thinking now at this point in this meeting? What? What are you saying? What are you talking about? The divine Son of Man from the prophecies of Daniel must be lifted up on a pole as that copper snake was lifted up on a pole? And the people of God must look to that as they look to the snake on the pole in the time of Moses? And remember, if you could be there in that conversation, I think it, you could come to the conclusion that Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man, by the way, Nicodemus. Can you... Think, hear this for the first time. This is almost an outrageous, outlandish, bizarre thing to say. What does he mean by this? Where is he headed with this? The Son of Man must be lifted up. What in the world would this man, this Pharisee, this religious ruler must have been thinking now? Now we should note here, of course, this is very, very important. This is what lifted up means. We should take note here, I should make a special point to point out to you that this is the first time of three. This is the first of three lifted up sayings that you will encounter in this gospel. Three times Jesus does this. Three times Jesus gives us a lifted up saying in this gospel. And they are all, of course, very important, quite significant. And all three times Jesus alludes to He Himself being lifted up. He, the Son of Man, being lifted up. 
And when he says that, there is a very deep double meaning in this. The Son of Man being lifted up is Jesus, of course, referring to his own sacrificial atoning death. He being lifted up on a block of wood, a wooden pole, a Roman cross, for all to see and for all to respond to. And it means this, don't forget this. Being lifted up also means his being lifted up in resurrection after his crucifixion. His being lifted up in resurrection and his being lifted up in exaltation back to eternal glory in eternity at the right hand of God the Father, the place from where he originally came. So when he says he's going to be lifted up, it is upon the cross. And it also means being lifted up in resurrection after the crucifixion and by being lifted up in his ascension to take his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over the universe. That's what these lifted up sayings mean. Keep that in your mind whenever we encounter these. So being lifted up, both of those meanings, it's a very important, it's an indispensable part and event of his atoning work in his mission, in his first arrival, his first advent. So now, so we fully understand what Jesus is saying here. And I don't like this. Sometimes folks in teaching this passage, they just, just skim right over the surface of this. We're not going to do that. I know you're shocked and surprised. So we fully understand what Jesus is saying here. Let's look at the points of comparison again that he's making between the event of Numbers 21 and what's going to happen to him by divine plan. He himself, the Son of Man, being lifted up. Because why? Put this together. Put this together in this conversation, this discourse, everything that we've learned so far. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and he is telling us, that this is how the new birth from above will be offered and available. The Son of Man must first be lifted up, and then this new birth will be offered and made available to sinful human beings who need it. That's what he's saying. This is how the new birth from above will be offered and available to human beings. Or that, let me express it this way. In order for sinful human beings to be able to receive this new birth from above by the power of God the Spirit, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just exactly as Moses lifted up the copper snake in the wilderness. Why? So that sinful people will be saved from God's judgment and will live. Or as Jesus says, will receive a new life, a new birth, saved from spiritual death. So one, in both cases, in both realities, what took place in Numbers 21 and what Jesus is speaking of in John chapter 3, death, the death penalty. Death is the just punishment for all human sin and rebellion against the Creator God. Two, in both cases, Numbers 21 and in John 3, it must be God Himself who graciously offers salvation. Human beings cannot achieve it on their own. It must be God Himself who in His sovereign grace, He must provide the remedy. He must provide salvation. Three, in both cases, the remedy for the human sin condition consists of something or someone provided by God which must be lifted up in clear public view for everybody to see, everybody to understand, and everybody to respond to. Very interesting. Four, in both cases, Numbers 21 and in John chapter 3, 
Those with a believing heart, those with a repentant heart, those who genuinely and completely trust in God himself and come to what God provides, that pole being lifted up, those who look to that, look to the one who is lifted up, they're healed. They're saved. They are spared from God's just judgment. Or in the era of the new covenant, they are born again. They receive new life, eternal life, and will escape the final judgment of God at the end of history as we know it. In the events of Numbers 21, sinful people are faced with physical death as punishment. In John chapter 3, sinful humanity is faced with spiritual death, eternal death for sin and rebellion against God. In Numbers 21, it is the type the bronze, the copper snake that is lifted up. The snake has no power to heal. God does the healing. The snake represents the means of God's judgment. The snake on the wood pole points to Christ, who is yet to come, who in John's gospel, he does have the power to heal. He does have the power to save. He is God the Son on that second pole. How's that for a shocking, outrageous thing? And He does have the power to heal. And He does have the power to save. For He is God Himself. God the Son. In Book of Numbers, the Book of Numbers 21, the emphasis, of course, is on physical healing from a snake bite. The judgment of God. The emphasis is on physical healing spared from God's judgment. In the Book of Numbers, when a person fixes their gaze on the copper snake, but actually putting their trust in God... And coming to God in repentance, they were physically healed or saved. In John's gospel, the advent of the Christ, it will be spiritual life and spiritual death that really is at the heart and core of the matter. It will be spiritual life, eternal life from eternal death and eternal judgment that is promised. Eternal life being to be spared from God's final judgment. It will be granted to one and all who places all of their personal one-on-one -on -one trust in the Son of Man who was actually lifted up on a pole in the first century A.D., a Roman cross. Nicodem Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and thereby, of course, us, anyone and everyone who ever sees, who ever reads, who ever hears this gospel, Jesus is telling one and all that the lifting up of He, the Son of Man, in an act of atonement for sin, is an absolute must. Folks, it is the absolute must. What does he say? Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up in order for you to be a recipient of the new birth, eternal life, and to be saved from the judgment of God. In other words, <clears throat> the lifting up of the Son of Man is not a remedy for the human sin condition, it is the one and the only possible remedy for the human sin condition. And a lot of people out there want to proclaim Jesus and something else in order for salvation to be achieved. This book, the words of God the Son Himself, say absolutely nothing of the kind. It is Christ and Christ alone lifted up he is the one and only must possible remedy for this human sin condition. And there is no other. Jesus plus nothing and no one else is the remedy 
for the human sin condition. Sinful humans, again, Nicodemus, cannot heal or save themselves. Only in the way that Jesus speaks of can the just demands of God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's divine justice must be met and can be met. Sin either must be punished or it must be atoned for. There's nothing else. There's no in between. Now imagine again, I know some of you folks have heard this from the time that you were children. Praise God for that. But imagine, if you can, if you will, hearing this for the very first time is Nicodemus. And I guarantee you, somewhere out there, in this community or in this country or in the world at large, someone is hearing this for the very first time. And pray, God Almighty, God the Spirit, is opening their eyes to the words of God the Son, and they will submit and receive this new birth. And so what? What exactly does Jesus mean by, let me get into a little more detail, what does Jesus mean by this Son of Man being lifted up? Again, for clarity, most important. This is Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, referring to His own death, His own approaching, atoning, redeeming, sacrificial death on that cross, on that pole, lifted up for the sins of sinful human beings. To offer life from death, to offer salvation and acquittal, from the very just judgment of a just and holy God, to make possible this new birth from above, to be able to offer to human beings the born-again life from above by the work, by the power of God, as I've told you before, when the Spirit of God applies the redeeming work of the lifted-up Son of Man to the human soul, to the human heart. Again, Whenever Jesus speaks of being lifted up on a pole or being lifted up in this gospel, it's always a reference to the cross and it's always a reference to the triumph of His resurrection and His exaltation, completing His atoning and redemptive work. Allow me to quote Dr. D.A. Carson from his really wonderful commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, Nicodemus is being challenged to turn to Jesus for a new birth in much the same way that ancient Israelites were challenged to turn to the copper snake Moses made for new or restored life. Absolutely. And that's what he's saying to us. We are being challenged to turn to Jesus for new birth and salvation in much the way that the ancient Israelites were challenged to turn to that copper snake that Moses made at the instruction of God so that they would receive new and restored life. He writes... Oh, <clears throat> Can you imagine what this must have been like for Nicodemus? And I believe he's, Carson is right in saying this. Only later, when Nicodemus saw Jesus on that cross, would it come completely clear that the lifting up of Jesus, the Son of Man, must take place on another brutal pole, a block of wood, on a forsaken site outside of Jerusalem. There the remedy for human sin would be achieved and would be won. End quote. I think he's right. We don't know specifically if he saw the crucifixion, but I think it's more than a distinct possibility that Nicodemus from a distance saw the Son of Man lifted up on a pole. 
Can you imagine what he thought and felt then? That's it. That's what he was talking about. He was right all along. That's what the sacred scriptures were right about all along. It's what it was all about. And Nicodemus, before or after, received the new birth. And he saw how it came about. He saw how it was achieved. He saw how it was won. And I don't know if Nicodemus saw Jesus after his resurrection, but I think that's a distinct possibility too. The Gospels tell us Jesus revealed himself to many people in those 40 days after his resurrection in instances that aren't specifically recorded in the Gospels. Jesus revealed himself to 500 people at one time. I think it's more than a distinct possibility that Nicodemus saw him lifted up in resurrection after his crucifixion. And it all came clear as it all came about. What a magnificent, privileged man Nicodemus was in many ways to experience the Christ in the person, in the flesh, in his first advent, in his arrival, and see all of these things firsthand taking place and realizing truly what it's all about, what it all means, where it's all headed. Wonderful. Jesus says that He, the divine Son of Man, and all that means must be lifted up in this way, and all that that means. For this, never forget, folks, this is a plan. This is a plan down to the last detail. This is the determined purpose and plan of Almighty God from eternity past. By His being lifted up, Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, the Word made flesh, He will conquer. How's that for the greatest irony in history? A man suffering one of the most awful deaths that any wicked state could impose upon a criminal. This is the way that the greatest victory in all of human history was won and was achieved. By way of a crucifixion, the cosmic victory was won. The cosmic conqueror conquered. That's the most amazing irony ever in the history of this universe. By His being lifted up, Jesus the Son of Man will conquer. By His being lifted up, Jesus the Son of Man will save. By His being lifted up, Jesus the Son of Man will heal. By His being lifted up, Jesus the Son of Man will provide life eternal, will provide pardon for deserved judgment. By His being lifted up, Jesus the Son of Man will be glorified and will glorify His divine Father. By His being lifted up in resurrection, He will be returned to the eternal cosmic glory that He always shared with the Father and always shall. While those who turn to Him, turn to His cross, come to that pole, look to that cross and that pole in faith, genuinely believing, just as the Israelites turned to the copper snake made by Moses, they will experience a new birth from above by the power of the Spirit. The work. Let me explain it in an equation. Let me express it in terms of an equation. Jesus is giving you an equation. Here's the equation. The work of the lifted up Son of Man applied to the human soul by the Spirit of God equals being born again from above. That's it. Let me say it again. The work of the lifted up Son of Man applied to the human soul by the Spirit of God equals being born again from above. Verse 15. 
Very brief verse. Very brief verse. With brief commentary. Necessary. But it's extremely important. Some of the most wonderful words in sacred scripture, in this gospel, and in the New Testament. Why? What's this all about? Where is this headed? What's the result? What's the consequence? That whoever believes in Him have eternal life. So that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so Jesus, He's making something of a summary statement, isn't He? This is a purpose summary of His work, of His mission of his being lifted up. He's giving Nicodemus, he's giving us the benefits, the blessings of the Son of Man's being lifted up. And the blessings and benefits of the Son of Man being lifted up, he says, will only come to those who believe, who believe in his person and work, whom God gives the ability to believe personally in his person and his work. The word believe in Greek is a very important one. Pistoon from the root word pistis, which, from which we get the word faith. Pistuo or pistuon is usually always translated in the New Testament as faith. Some kind of faith, belief, to believe. It means this. It's a personal belief. It's a one-on-one -on -one personal thing between the sinner and Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who was lifted up. That's what it means. It's that kind of belief. Personal, complete, authentic trust or confidence. In Christ Himself, believing, placing absolute trust, genuine trust and confidence completely in Him personally, in everything He is, everything He was, everything He will be, everything He said, and everything He did, and everything accomplished. Everything He is, everything He has done. That kind of belief. Comprehensive. Absolutely essential, Jesus Himself says, for the born-again life. Absolutely essential. And even that is a gracious gift from God. The nature of the born anew or born again life is this, eternal life. You're used to hearing that. Look at this gospel for the first time. This is the first time you ever hear this in this gospel. This is the first time that the eternal life reality or the reality of an eternal life, very first time that this is mentioned by Jesus in this gospel. And it's a beautiful poetic phrase or expression in the original Greek. I love it so much more in Greek than I do in English. Zoen aionion. It's beautiful. It even sounds pretty. Well, not pronounced by me, but pronounced by others. Zoen aionion is what we translate as everlasting life or eternal life. And if you literally transliterate this from the Greek, it means this. It's beautiful. Zoen aeonion means life in the age that is beyond all ages for ages and ages and ages. How beautiful and poetic that is, isn't it? Those who look to the Son of Man lifted up and thereby may be given the ability to believe and to receive this born-again life from above by the power of the Spirit. They will receive life in the age which is beyond all ages for ages for ages and ages, or eternal or forever life, as we would say. But also in closing, I'll ask you to remember this. This expression, eternal life, it's not only about quantity, folks. It's about quality. It's not only about the quantity, forever life. It's about the quality of this forever life. Again, it's about not merely quantity, but quality. 
means this. Quantity, yes, forever life. But what is the quality of that forever life? It is life truly at its best. Life truly at its best. Life as God the Almighty always intended human life to be. Pure, holy, immortal, incorruptible, perfect in every way and never ending. Life with Him in His personal presence with no barriers or obstacles or hindrances in between. To be in the personal presence of the eternal being, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect bliss, satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy forever. Life as it was originally meant to be for creatures who were to bear the image of God and enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. That's what Zoe and Aeonion is, according to Jesus. Eternal life is perfect, holy, forever life with God, life in Christ, life in and with He who is the Word made flesh. And to quote Carson again, I close with this. The eternal life begun by the new birth is nothing less than the eternal life by way of He who is the eternal Word. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the Son of Man who is lifted up, and that by believing in Him, you may have Zoe Naionian in His name. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the wonderful story of history and Your purpose and plan in history of which You have graciously and kindly made us a part. Thank You for giving us this wonderful story so that we may know our part in Your story. And thank You for sovereignly making us a part of your story. Thank you for this wonderful lesson, the most wonderful ever given to humanity. And we pray that your word will go out true and faithful and that many will look to the Son of Man who is lifted up and receive life and escape the judgment and know you personally in this forever life. In Jesus' holy name and for his sake and for his work and for his kingdom we pray. Amen.